Um, Today's reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 13. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, good morning, and happy new year, Christ community. My name is Tyler, and I'm one of the pastors here at our downtown campus. I have got to know, are there any other midnight people in here who was up till midnight last night. Oh, good. Okay. I'm not alone. I love New Year's Eve. Uh, Just bonus information. I think it's because I love wearing uh, black and shiny things. And so it is one of my favorite holidays and it was uh, a joy to celebrate it last night. And it's a joy to celebrate this first day of the year with you. Um, I think it's not a surprise to many of you this past year. It was a tough one for me and my family might have been a tough one for you as well, but I found this church to be a, a good place to have a bad year, and so I'm grateful uh, for the support of this community and the way that you encouraged me this last year, and that means I'm, I'm ready. I'm excited to be starting a new year with new hopes and new dreams this morning uh, with this family. Uh, before we begin our study of this morning's scripture, I want to let you know what I've been up to this past week. I've had a great week since we gathered here last. We did have a, a Christmas Day service here. Then I hopped on a plane and went right back to Fort Wayne and got to see my family. So we did sort of a belated Christmas. And then I zipped down uh, from Fort Wayne to Indianapolis, Indiana, to Cruise Winter Conference there uh, in DCC. Some of you might know this, but for about five years, I worked with crew in conferencing, uh, was a producer for this conference for five years. I, I gotta be, I do love a foggy room with lights in it, but that's another story for another time. So uh, five years producing, and it was great to see old friends there, uh, teammates there, to be back in a place that's familiar with me. This is where I've done New Year's Eve for the past five years. And so I guess you could say that I launched into 2017 in a way very similar to the way I launched into 2016, right? Between being back in Indiana with family and then going to this conference, that was a a familiar way to start the year for me. And this morning here at church, we're starting 2017 the same way that we started 2016. 
in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, We're back. For those of you that have been here for a long time, you know that we've been in a multi-year, verse-by-verse study of Matthew's Gospel. Did you know that up until this date, we've done 40 weeks in Matthew's Gospel? We've taken some breaks along the way, but 40 weeks, and we have 17 more to go. Uh, We'll be in Matthew's Gospel all the way until Easter. And some of those smiles indicated, I can see it, 17 more weeks. Gosh, Tyler, haven't we already heard most of Jesus' life from Matthew? Uh, Didn't we hear Jesus' birth from Matthew? We did that series. Haven't we heard Matthew kind of re-describe the Sermon on the Mount? We spent a long time last spring uh, studying that. We've explored countless narratives from Matthew about uh, healings from Jesus and teachings of Jesus. How, how do we have 17 weeks left? I mean, aren't we to the last week of Jesus' life? I mean, isn't, we, we talked about it all the way up to now. Isn't there just one week left for Jesus on this earth? And here's the thing. Beginning in Matthew 21, which we're going to study today, uh, you're right. There is just one week left in Jesus' life, but Matthew slows down the pace of his narrative at this point because he wants his readers to, to take their time. He wants them to soak in every detail of the last week Jesus had on earth before his arrest and crucifixion. Uh, and why? Why this remarkable slowdown in narrative pace? And here's why. It's because Matthew's convinced that this week, the single week we'll be studying for the next 17 weeks. He's convinced that this week is the most important and significant week in all of human history. In fact, I think if we had Matthew with us here this morning, I'm certain that he'd tell us that this week was more important than that week in 1440 uh, when Johann Gutenberg uh, invented the printing press and revolutionized the way that humans communicate with one another. I'm certain if we had Matthew with us here this morning, he'd say this week is more significant than April 1686 when Isaac Newton discovered the theory of gravity that explained why we are stuck to this earth and why our earth rotates around the sun, right? I'm sure he would say this week that we'll be studying is more important than that week. In fact, Matthew, were we to talk to him today, I'm positive he would argue that this week, the week we'll be studying, is more important than that week in July 1776, the first week, right, when uh, the United States declared its independence and kind of had a political revolution that revolutionized government across the world for centuries to come. I'm certain he'd say that this week he's written about is more important than even that week because Matthew uh, suggests by the way he slows down his narrative pace that Jesus' last week on earth was the most important week ever in human history. And so, church, we're going to take our time to study it. Matthew takes his time to document it. We're going to be in Matthew uh, for that duration so we can soak it in, so we can see what he left for us to see. And we're starting there this morning in Matthew 21, verse 1, is Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. And this morning, we're going to see Jesus self-consciously fulfill a prophecy That's the first part, and kind of declare who he is by fulfilling this prophecy. And then we'll see a few different reactions to that declaration of Jesus's identity. And it's my hope that exploring uh, Jesus's articulation of his identity and the way that people reacted to this articulation will help us evaluate afresh the way that we respond to Jesus 
particularly as we begin this new year. So if you haven't turned there already, would you join me in Matthew 21? Matthew 21, we'll start in verse 1, and it says this. Matthew writes, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. So if you remember our study from Matthew, if you were with us last fall, there was this big emphasis we made that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, that Jesus has a mission on earth, that he knows this mission, and that he knows this, the destination for this mission is Jerusalem. And so now Jesus is here. He's on the outskirts of the city, and he asks his disciples to bring him a donkey and a colt. And he says, we, we've made it. Here we are. We're outside the city. Go in and bring me a donkey and a colt. And to help us understand the scene that Matthew is painting here, when he's talking about this place, Bethpage, right in the Mount of Olives, uh, I did some historical research and some modern geography, so I hope we can get our imaginations around this. The text begins by saying that they arrived at a place called Bethpage, the Mount of Olives. Now, Bethpage is an elevated place up over the city of Jerusalem, and it's about 1.5 miles away from the city center. So to help you imagine this, think that you're at the, you know, just in your mind's eye, take yourself up to the World War I Museum and Memorial, right? Have you been out on that, like, patio under the big obelisk, the tall, I mean, the monument that's there? So you're out on that patio looking over Kansas City, and what's about 1.5 miles away from that spot on the patio is the Sprint Center, Okay, so I think we have a picture to help your imagination. Yes, so you're up there on this high point overlooking the city, and you're about the distance away as the Sprint Center. That's where Jesus and his disciples are in relationship to Jerusalem. This is about the view that they have. So they've made it to Jerusalem. They're looking down over the city. They can see it, right, in the same way that you can see the Sprint Center pretty clearly from that spot up by the, the monument. And Jesus says, okay, we've arrived. Now go get me a donkey and a colt. He makes the very odd request, go into the village in front of you, and he's not talking about Jerusalem, he's talking about a smaller village on the way. Go into this village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a tied donkey and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, this request seems rather strange, doesn't it? It almost seems as if Jesus is asking his disciples to go and steal a donkey and a colt, right? Uh, and it, it can seem that maybe Jesus is looking for some kind of fresh new ride to take him into the big city. You know, it's like, hey, go find this car. There's a Mercedes waiting in a parking lot. The keys are inside it. No one's there. Drive it back here. Right? It can take on some of that flavor, but there is something else going on. There's something deeper that Matthew's embedded into this narrative that has more significance. You see, throughout Matthew's gospel, he presents Jesus as a person who travels, right? I mean, we've seen this again and again as we've worked our way through Matthew's gospel. Jesus goes to this city and teaches, and then he goes to this city and heals, and he goes to that place and has an interaction with the religious leaders, right? So Jesus is a, a traveler, and Matthew makes that clear. And with every time that Jesus travels, except for the times that we see him in a boat crossing a sea, it seems as if Jesus is traveling on foot. Jesus is, you could say, a, a seasoned pedestrian. And the reason that I wanted us to do even that imagination of the World War I Memorial to the Sprint Center, right, is because I think we need to get this, that Jesus 
They're that distance away. They see the city center. He asks for a donkey and a colt, and I think we can immediately think, oh, it's because Jesus wants something to ride in on. Maybe he's tired. Maybe he's worn out. But here's the thing. It's not a great distance, is it, for a seasoned traveler who's used to traveling by foot. 1.5 miles, the distance between the monument to the Sprint Center, 1.5 miles, which Google Maps says is a 30-minute walk, if you want to try it from that mile. 1.5 miles is not a long distance. And I say all that to say this. Jesus isn't asking for a donkey or colt because he's looking for like a better way to get into Jerusalem because he doesn't want to walk a long way, right? It's not a long way from where he is. But Jesus asked for a donkey and a colt because he wants to enter Jerusalem in the right way. He wants to enter Jerusalem in a way that fulfills Old Testament prophecy. And Matthew points this out in verse 4. He says, all this took place what was spo- so that it could fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then Matthew quotes from Zechariah 9.9, which is an Old Testament prophet that was written hundreds of years before. And he quotes Zechariah, who wrote, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the full of a donkey. Jesus asks his disciples on the outskirts of Jerusalem to bring him a donkey and a colt so that he can enter the city in the manner described by the prophets. Now, did you know that there are over 40 prophecies in the Old Testament uh, that give very specific information about the promised Messiah, the one who would come to rescue and deliver God's people, the one who would establish God's kingdom on earth. And these prophecies range from uh, prophecies about the birth of the Messiah, so the the fact that he would be born of a virgin, for example, uh, to details surrounding his death, that he'd be pierced, which matches what we know about uh, the way that Jesus died, right? He was crucified, which is a, a piercing of the skin. And some of these prophecies were consciously fulfilled by Jesus, like the one we see here, while others were fulfilled without Jesus's conscious influence. So, for example, Jesus had no way of influencing the fact that he was born in Bethlehem. He wasn't around to tell Mary and Joseph to go there. That was something that was fulfilled without Jesus's conscious influence, we could say. But there's other times uh, like this situation where Jesus self-consciously tries to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy. And I've got to be honest, it might seem a bit underwhelming uh, on January 1st. It's right. Don't you have anything better, Tyler? Uh, it might seem a little bit underwhelming that we're spending so much time talking about Jesus grabbing a donkey because this feels like the kind of prophecy that any kid could fulfill at a petting zoo, right? You just grab the kind of the nearest animal to ride in. You know that's what it says in the book, and so you say, I'm going to do that myself. Um, but let me say this. I believe that this particular prophecy fulfillment is worthy of our attention and our reflection this morning, and here's why. This self-consciously fulfilled prophecy helps us answer a critical question that's been asked by individuals who encounter the story of Jesus for centuries. And the question is this, who does Jesus think he is? Who does Jesus think he is? This is a question that was asked at the time when Jesus was on the earth. This is a question people still ask now. Who does Jesus think he is? And in the act of self-consciously fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy, 
right? In the act of asking his disciples to bring him a donkey and a colt so he could ride into Jerusalem in that specific way, just in the very act of wanting to position himself in a manner that is in accordance with Old Testament prophecy about who the Messiah would be and how he would work, Jesus is making a clear and definitive statement about who he thinks he is. Jesus is self-identifying as the Messiah. He's saying, I'm Lord of all and I'm king of all. And how can we know this for sure? Well, let's look again at what Jesus told the disciples to say if anyone asks them why they're taking their donkey. He says, if anyone says anything to you, right, you're in the car, you're turning the keys, hey, that's mine. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And this is critical. Who does Jesus think he is? Who does Jesus say he is? He says, I'm the Messiah, right? The Lord needs your donkey. And I'm going to show you this. I'm going to say this by riding into Jerusalem on a colt, by riding it on a donkey in the same way that the prophets foretold. He's letting everyone know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he believes he's the Messiah. Now, you know, as I was working my way through this text this week, I, uh, started to reflect on my time in high school. I was a member of my high school's marching band and also our concert band. I was a proud member, still probably am a proud member, once you're in, you're always in, right, of the Carol Charger Pride, uh, one of Indiana's finest marching bands, if you ask me. And if you were in high school band, you might know that there's a, a ranking system that exists within band. I don't know if you had this in your band, but like a first chair, a second chair, third chair, does this sound familiar at all. See, here's what would happen. We had this in ours. Mr. K, our band director at the beginning of the year, would audition every person in a particular section, right? So all the saxophone players would get together, all the clarinet players. You'd play something that Mr. K had selected, and then there'd be a ranking. You know, you did it best, she was next, he was next, and so you get this chair system. And that dictated where you would sit in the arrangement of the band. And so you'd get that initial placement, and then what would happen during the course of the year is if you thought that you had approved enough through kind of personal practice, or if you thought you had improved enough because you'd have private lessons, you could come and challenge the person in the seat above you, and you would both play in front of Mr. K, and you could move up a chair in band. And people wanted to move up chairs because it's a little, I don't know, it's special to say your first chair. There's better parts for people in higher chairs. Solos go to the first chair player of every section, right? So it was something that you wanted to do. You wanted to move up in chairs. And I think that I remembered this time in band. I went back there because I I was imagining this. I imagine like a fifth chair clarinet player, and she like loves band, and there were many people like this. She loves band. She does the initial audition. She gets placed in fifth chair, and she goes home, and she doesn't stop playing that clarinet. I mean, it is nonstop. Her parents get sick of it. Every night she's practicing. She's improving. She's getting better. And then one day she walks into the band room, and she goes straight to that first chair seat, and she sits in it. And can you imagine what the response would be if someone, your fifth chair, your fifth chair, you walk right in and you sit in that first chair place. I mean, what would she be communicating in that action? What would people pick up by what she did? I think she would be giving a loud and clear message that says, I've been practicing. I've been getting my stuff together. I don't play how I played at the beginning of the year. I'm the best in this section. I think I deserve to be first chair. By sitting in that spot, Even though she doesn't have to say anything at all, she'd be communicating very clearly that she believes she is the best clarinet player in the band. And I say that to say this, 
Jesus, without saying a word, by the fact that he sat on a donkey, was making a big point. In the same way that that clarinet player could just sit down there and folks would knew that she means business, Jesus, by sitting on this donkey, I mean, we don't want to miss this, but I think we do when we read it. He's saying something very clearly. He's saying, I see myself as the Messiah. I, I, my message is consistent. He's been saying it all along, but he's saying it again without having to say it at all. I'm the Messiah. I'm the king who's been promised. I'm the one who's going to save and redeem God's people. I'm the one that the Old Testament foretold. All those ancient scriptures refer to me. That's who Jesus says he is. But despite the clarity of this announcement of his identity, I think despite the fact that Jewish people could have recognized what he's trying to do, this wouldn't be, uh, I think, something that was hidden from them. It'd be like, oh, yes, he is self-consciously styling himself in the mold of the Messiah. Despite that clarity, um, there are those in this morning's passage who had other ideas about who Jesus was and kind of other ideas about what he was supposed to do when he entered Jerusalem. And that's where this text takes us next. So Jesus says through his actions, I'm the Messiah, but then he gets misunderstood, and he's misunderstood by two main groups. First, he's misunderstood by his followers. They just don't get who he is. And we see this beginning in verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So Jesus sat on their, uh, their cloaks. And most of the crowd spread out their cloaks on the ground, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him and followed him, and they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, Tyler, I thought you said that Jesus' followers misunderstood him. These verses don't make it sound like that to me. They're, they're cheering, they're shouting, they're, they're lining the streets with their coats. I mean, this, this seems like the kind of thing you do for the Messiah. And here's the question I'd like to ask back. Why do you think they're cheering? Why do you think they're making such a big deal about Jesus' entrance? Why are they singing and shouting? Why all the hoopla and praise? What's, what's motivating their adoration? Because I think it's only when we recognize the motivation of their celebration that we realize how far they were from understanding who Jesus really is. Let me tell you why I think they're shouting. I think they're shouting and singing and waving palm branches as Jesus enters because they believe that Jesus is, yes, maybe some kind of messianic figure, but they think he's going to come on a military conquest and enter the city and liberate the Jewish people and establish a new regime. I believe the crowds cheered and called Jesus son of David, which, yes, is a messianic title because they believed he would be a political savior, one that freed them from the control of Rome, a savior that would use military force to reestablish a sovereign nation. And why do I think this? Uh, because there's many examples of, from this period in time where other Jewish leaders entered cities in such a way. Like Jesus, they made claims about being some kind of savior figure, and when they would make grand entrances into a city, the same kind of response would happen. Uh, for example, I think of Judas Maccabeus. This is the guy that gave us Hanukkah, but that's another sermon for another time. But Judas Maccabeus, when he entered into the city of Jerusalem, you read ancient accounts, it goes down the same way. 
People are singing and shouting. They're throwing down coats. There's palm branches being waved. This was not unique to Jesus. In fact, this is the kind of entrance into a city in ancient literature that would, you'd expect from any kind of grand military or political leader entering a city. This happened when the Caesars returned home or any kind of grand governor or something arriving. I mean, this was that kind of celebration. So I believe that the crowds cheering for Jesus cheered because they thought he was going to take over Jerusalem by force. I think they thought this great teacher who had showed his power out on the plains was coming to the city to make a big impact and he was going to leverage that authority and leverage his people gathering ability, ability to mobilize an army and finally stick it back to Rome. They were ready to take up arms. They believed Jesus was the Savior. They called him Son of David because they thought he was a political Savior who would fight their Roman oppressors. But that's not what happened, is it? And here's, here's what you got to get about Jerusalem geography. So Jesus is walking into the city, and one of the places he would have been going that I think would have played right into their expectations was an armory. There's a big armory, right? And so Jesus is coming in. They're waving. They're praising. There's all this stuff. And I think it would be natural for folks to expect he's heading to the armory. We're finally going to get it. This is, gonna, this is our day. You know, great day to be a Jew in Jerusalem. But Jesus turns a corner and heads to the temple instead. I mean, that's what makes the beginning of verse 12 so big. When it said Jesus entered the temple, Matthew's indicating that expectations were thwarted. The crowds misunderstood. They thought a political savior was coming. His followers assumed that's why the entrance was taking place, and that's not what happened at all. So the first people that misunderstood Jesus, it's his followers. They thought he was a military leader coming to save the day through political force. That was not his goal at all. The second group that misunderstood Jesus uh, were the religious leaders. And we do see this beginning in verse 12. It said, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And then verse 15, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Jesus arrives, he heads to the temple instead of the armory, he cleans out some of the money changing, and he starts inviting in those who were sick, blind and lame, so folks that would be considered unclean into a clean part of the temple. And the religious leaders of the day, I mean, they're indignant. They're offended. They're upset. In their minds, Jesus was some kind of troublemaker. He was some kind of imposter. He had come in to make a big scene, and he'd ruined everything in the religious order, right? They had a good system going. They knew how to, these tables of exchange, it was so people could exchange and buy things to sacrifice at the temple. Jesus, we've got a system. We know how people can make their sacrifice. We know who needs to stay there and who can come in and who can and how this works and what's clean and what's not. Why are you coming in and messing everything up? To the religious leaders, Jesus would have seemed like some kind of religious rebel. He would have been some kind of fraud, some kind of rabble rouser who had no regard for the system of right worship or the system of ritual cleansing and who disgracefully disrupted temple life, causing disorder and rebellion. See, by entering Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus had made clear his declaration that he was the Messiah and the Lord of all, but he was misunderstood by the crowds. He was misunderstood by the religious leaders. His followers thought he was a military leader, and the religious elite believed he was a trouble 
maker. And I believe that this story that we've recapped briefly this morning, I think this reality that Jesus had identified himself clearly and was misunderstood, I think that has something to teach us today. The fact that Jesus could be so misconstrued even after clearly revealing who he is, that has something to say to us this morning as we enter into 2017. And the lesson is this. When it comes to Jesus, what matters most is not who we think he is, but who he says he is. When it comes to Jesus, it's not who we think he is, it's who he says he is. His followers thought he was a military leader. The religious elite thought he was a troublemaker and a rebel. But Jesus had said clearly through his actions, I am the Messiah. When it comes to Jesus, it's not who we think he is, it's who he says he is. Did you know in in 2013, a woman entered a high-end store in Zurich, Switzerland. She had traveled to Europe for the wedding of a friend and thought she'd do a little shopping while she was there. This all seems understandable. She was perusing the handbags when she saw one that caught her eye. It was a small crocodile skin bag that was behind the counter. And so she asked the store attendant if she could see the bag. And the store attendant said to her, no, 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 you don't want to see that bag. You, You can't afford that bag. Why don't you look at these over here. And she said, no, no, please, I really do want to see that bag. And the attendant replied again, I I don't want to offend you. The quote was, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but you won't be able to afford it. And the woman left the store. And the next day, that incident became international news because the woman visiting Zurich was Oprah Winfrey. And the wedding she was there to attend was Tina Turner's. And the purse that she wanted to buy is $38,000, which is a bunch of money, church. If you got those kind of purses, let me know. Uh, (laughs) It's a lot of money, but it's nothing if your net worth is measured in the billions. And in the same way that that store assistant missed an opportunity to make a sale, and in the same way that that store assistant made a big mistake by not trusting Oprah's uh, assertion that she could afford it, that she was who she said she was, she's something, someone that deserved that kind of bag or could afford that kind of bag, we make a great error when we ignore, discount, or dismiss the claims that Jesus made about himself, particularly these claims he made in his last week on earth. Because it's not who we think he is, it's who he says he is. And here in Matthew 21, Jesus gives us a great articulation of who he thinks he is. Jesus spoke clearly by riding on that donkey, and he speaks to us now. He says, I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. I'm the one who the prophets fold spoke about. Yet despite of Jesus saying this so clearly, his followers then, and I would say his followers now, get it twisted who Jesus is and what he's here to do, and what he's all about. They placed their own expectations on Jesus. That's what his followers were doing. They wanted a military leader to be uh, free from Roman oppression, and so they placed those hopes on Jesus. Jesus wasn't there to do that work. The religious elite placed their own fear and insecurity on Jesus. They thought that someone was coming to overturn their system, and so they put that, Jesus isn't a troublemaker. Jesus isn't a rebel. It's possible when Jesus so clearly says who he is for folks to misunderstand, to put their own expectations or their own frustrations and insecurities upon him and make him out to be something that he's not. But Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. I'm the king. I'm Lord over all, the promised one from God who will rescue the world and establish God's kingdom. I'm the king of God's kingdom. And Jesus, he's a good king. He's a humble king. He's 
a kind king and a loving king. He's the king who left heaven and came into this world in order that we might become like him. He's the king that put on flesh only to have it ripped off on the cross, right, so that we might become one with the Father and have permanent relationship with him. Jesus, he's the self-sacrificing king, the king who gives his life on behalf of his people. Paul put it this way, talking about Jesus. He said, Jesus made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul says Jesus is a humble king. Jesus is a gentle king. Jesus made himself nothing and died for you and me. But Paul continues. He says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus is a humble king, and he is a kind king, and he's a good king, but he's king nonetheless. Paul writes that every knee shall bow and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, which isn't a last name for Jesus. It's a title. He's Lord over all. He's king of the universe. And church, as we begin this new year, as we think and plan and dream about 2017, as we approach God in prayer talking about those plans and seeking guidance in those plans, I hope the reality that Jesus is king shapes our interaction with God. I hope the reality that Jesus is king shapes our plans. I hope the reality that Jesus is king causes us to stop and pause to worship him. I hope the reality that Jesus is king doesn't escape us or isn't replaced by some other image or version of Jesus, by some impression that maybe Jesus is a good teacher merely or a good life model simply or once always the best for us would never give us anything hard or anything challenging in life. I hope that our image of Jesus isn't replaced and commandeered by some other expectations or hopes we have. I hope we see this king as he really is. He is the king and he wants first chair in our lives. Not only does he want it, but he deserves it. So in a season when so many are looking to make changes, at the beginning of the year where the gyms will be full, right? More salads will be sold this week, I'm sure. Uh, new schedules will be attempted. Everyone's starting something new. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. In a time where our whole culture seems to be evaluating last year and looking forward to something new this year. In that moment, I want to ask you this. How will Jesus be king of your 2017? Right? He is the king. He's articulated that clearly. How will Jesus be king of your 2017? He's spoken clearly about who he is. He is the, the king, the Messiah, the chosen and exalted one whose God's given the place above all other names. Right? Are there habits that you need to adjust? Are there practices that you need to embrace? Are there decisions that you need to make? I know they could be as varied as the people in this room, but the question stands, how will Jesus be the king of your 2017? Because he said that he is the king, and he can be so easily misunderstood, but we have the opportunity this year to take Jesus at his word, because it's not who we think he is, it's who he says he is. We can listen to him acknowledge him as king, and adjust our lives accordingly in order to honor and worship him and give him the praise he's due.
Are you with me? Let's pray. Jesus, you are king. And I know I forget that. I, I love your teaching most days. It seems pretty wise. I love your, your kindness always. You are kind. You are good. You are humble. But you are king nonetheless. And it can be so easy for us to miss that. Lord, I ask that in this moment, just knowing the variety of situations and circumstances in this room, pray that you can make it real clear to folks in their hearts how they can acknowledge you as king this year. Make it clear to me, Lord. What needs to be adjusted? What needs to be let go? What needs to be embraced in order to give you the honor that you're due, in order to recognize the fact that you are sovereign over all? I want to be on board with that, Jesus. I don't want to keep making up some other Jesus that just does nice things for me or that fits what I think I need. You're the king. You deserve worship and praise. Lord, help us all as a church uh, to adjust this next year, uh, to live lives that give you the praise that you're due. In your name we pray, amen.